You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. You may be seated. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Redemption Hill Church. It's good to be here. Um, as you know, uh, I've said this before, I'll continue to say it again. Parents with kids, if your kids do get restless, we do have audio in the foyer and in the lounge over there. Lounge is where the bathroom is located. But um, just as a reminder to you, because I know we have a lot of kids and we haven't had Redemption Hill kids for, we've been having it in the park. We'll have it again next week, but we haven't had it while we're at West Kirk. But they're never a burden to me. I keep saying that, and some parents are kind of like, yeah, right. No, they're not. I love it when kids are able to sit through the service. I love Redemption Hill kids as well, but you need to know that they are never a burden when they're in this sanctuary, when they're worshiping, when they're seeing parents worship, when they're hearing the Word of God preached. Never a burden, never once. All right, let's get into today's passage. As you know, we're going through, marching through the book of Ephesians. Uh, Our sermon series is called United in Christ. That means we are indeed, Ephesians 1, united in Christ, but that also means we are united to one another because we are united in Christ And as we are united, this is what we're going to see today, we're called to grow in maturity. When we think about mature Christians, where does your mind go to? The faithful person who maybe reads their Bible. The individual who's praying in the morning, in the afternoon, and then in the evening, you know? The person who faithfully goes to church. Our mind kind of goes into that direction when we think about, well, that guy looks like a mature Christian. And to some degree, that is indeed true. But today, we're going to see more about what it means, what it looks like to grow in your faith, to, to be an infant and grow into maturity. And so that's what we're going to wrestle with today. So I'm going to pray briefly, as I always do, and then we're just going to get right into our passage. Heavenly Father, I indeed need your help. My prayer this afternoon is that these precious saints would hear from you. And so, God, as we look at your word, trust and know that the power of the Spirit is indeed at work, instructing our minds and our hearts to become more and more like our Savior, Jesus to help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Several months ago, my in-laws received a new puppy. (laughs) A new puppy. His name is Blue. Blue is a great dog. He's a good-looking dog, but like I said, he's also like puppy. We're in puppies. They're in puppy stage right now. And uh, naturally, uh, Blue plays with everything and everyone. And you know what? Those teeth leave marks. (laughs) I mean, I had a while back, and my father-in-law certainly knows this. He's got, like, the marks on his arm to prove it. Those teeth leave marks. So what do you do with a puppy like Blue? Well, what do you hope for? You hope he matures. I mean, we want the puppy to, what, get out of puppy stage. There comes to a point where the biting on the arm just ain't cool. Now, he's a great dog, but we want him out of that stage. They want them out of that stage. Blue needs to be conditioned to know right from wrong. He needs to learn not only not to bite, but you, you go to the bathroom in the grass, and there's no grass inside the house. Anyone who's owned a puppy understands what I'm talking about. Diligent effort on the front end will, will pay dividends later. Blue will mature, but it does take some effort, right? 
Christians are called to mature as well. In one sense, all people go from infant to adult. You know, to be crude for a moment, but be real, go from peeing in a diaper to like the toilet. (laughs) They go from drinking milk to solid food. Between infant and adult, there are additional stages of growth. After infant, a child becomes what? A toddler, right? Starts walking around and grabbing on everything. We now use words like preteen and teenager. We have young adults before the adult stage. As a person moves from one stage of life to the next, the expectation is that individual will grow into maturity. What does maturity look like? Well, a goal could be to see a child become an adult who takes on responsibilities, get a job, hold the job. Become a member of society, of your community, and make a difference in your community. Frankly, each culture imposes its own metrics on maturity. American culture has its own metrics. You go to a different country, they're going to have their own metrics of what it looks like for an individual to be mature. Because there is a natural progression of maturity in humanity, we should not be shocked that God has something to say about your growth about you becoming a mature Christian. But instead of a person maturing to the point of attaining a job, God is concerned, and you're not surprised by this, He is concerned with your spiritual maturity. He is concerned with your spiritual growth. How do you go from drinking spiritual milk to solid food? And how do you ensure you do not regress out of a place of perhaps maturity? Like some people can get there, but then it's like you go backwards. Many Christians will make their way up, like the spiritual mountain, to use a metaphor, but oftentimes forget there's an other side back down when you get to the top of that mountain. Spiritual maturity is to be maintained. The appeal for spiritual growth to the Ephesian church comes off the heels of Paul telling them they are called to unity. We see a little bit more about this today in our passage, what it it means to stay united. We are called to unity, but how does the church maintain unity? The answer revolves around your spiritual growth. And when I say you, I mean you as an individual, as a person. A person created in God's image who has been saved by the grace of the gospel. So while we are collectively a local church, a person sitting next to you is not ultimately accountable for your spiritual growth. Yes, that person can help you study the Bible. That person can pray with you. That person could fast with you, could take you to church, but ultimately you are responsible for your spiritual growth, which does impact the wider church community. And the the nuts and bolts of unity through spiritual growth are brought into greater focus because what we see here in Ephesians, there's like this hostile atmosphere that the Ephesian church is actually contending with. How do we know the Ephesian church was located in a hostile atmosphere or culture? Well, historians certainly have pointed this out. They've clearly found out that the city of Ephesus was a very religiously diverse city, one of the most diverse cities in the first century. Here are a few prominent cults and religions. Ephesus was home of the Greek god Artemis, or Diana. Artemis was the god of fertility, while Artemis was the most famed Greek god. Historical evidence suggests over 50 Greek gods were worshipped actually in Ephesus. It's a lot. Ephesus was also home to this group called the Gnostics. 
Gnostics claim to have superior spiritual and phys- uh, 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 psychological knowledge, philosophical knowledge. And of course, magic was popular in Ephesus. We know from Acts 19 that Paul encountered the sons of Sceva who were magicians. So a lot going on in the city of Ephesus, religiously speaking. Now, it seems like pluralism was working well in Ephesus. One could make that conclusion to a point, but not so fast. When Paul comes to town preaching the gospel, nobody was having it. The gospel demands complete allegiance, and many were not happy with the message. So what happened? Well, a riot breaks out in Ephesus, because Paul was preaching the gospel, and then the government steps in to to try to quell the riot. Again, all back into Acts 19. So Paul is now writing back to the Ephesian church, encouraging them to stay united and to grow in in their maturity, especially in the face of persecution. Because we think growing in maturity is supposed to be easy when everything's going well. It's not what Paul is pointing out here. You grow when it's hard, when it's not easy, when it seems like all the winds are coming in your, all the wrong winds are coming right in your face. So Paul was calling them to grow, and God is calling us to grow in our faith. Why? Look at verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. I'll uh, talk about the particulars of a hostile atmosphere in a moment, but I want you to see the Ephesian church and Redemption Hill church face similar battles. Yes, the circumstances have changed, but false doctrine is being wildly and perniciously spouted out from behind pulpits even in America. We know the devil uses people to be cunning and to be crafty and deceitful. The pluralism of America, I think, is greater than what we see in Ephesus. We live in a country where you can, you can take whatever it is you want to believe and you can find something that you can map that onto. I want to believe this. I'll, I promise you, you'll find something. Religious pluralism creates some tension for Christians. Here's a great passage that applies to our day. 2 Timothy 4 says this, For the time is coming where people will not endure sound teaching. I could stop there. A time is coming where people will not endure sound teaching, even in local churches. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander into myths. Now, tell me that doesn't sound like 21st century America. Right? Here's the bottom line. The devil does not want you to grow into maturity. The devil wants you to be a child who is constantly controlled by teaching that keeps you from God, to keep you, to keep you a child. How does the devil frequently do this? The devil uses false teachers and false schemes to tell you what you want to hear, but not what God wants you to hear. 
Like, we all want to be told what we want to hear, right? Like, let's just be honest with ourselves. But the real question is, what does God want you to hear? That's what we need to be pursuing, and that's part of the tension and the challenge. There is a, not, there's a lot of noise in the world, a lot of noise coming from pulpits. The way to cut through the noise so that you can grow in your faith is with the Word of God. So with this said, let's look at our text more specifically. Let's grow by looking at the details. Here's how I'll approach this passage for the remainder of my time. First, I want to consider the causes for spiritual growth. What, what does cause us to grow? I think that's an important question. If God's calling us to grow, okay, what does that look like? Second, we'll look at the pitfalls to spiritual growth, which I already mentioned briefly, but we'll look at that in more detail. And third, I want to ask, what's the end goal of growing into maturity? Like, where are we headed here? Does it ever stop? Like, can you ever really reach the top of the mountain of spiritual maturity? Is that even attainable? I'm going to ask that question at the end. So one more time, if you like taking notes, here's your heading. We'll look at the causes of spiritual growth, the hindrances to spiritual growth, and then what's the end goal? Where are we headed here? Number one, the causes of spiritual growth. We should not be shocked that a cause of spiritual growth is your pursuit of ongoing unity in the local church. Consider what I'm saying from, a, from like a negative perspective. Disunity debilitates your ability to grow in your faith in the local church. So when there's disunity, it is very difficult to grow. That's why we strive for unity. Last week, I preached an entire sermon on unity, and it flows right into verses 12 and 13. Take a look at the end of 12. We want to grow through the building up of the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. The word build in verse 12 is the right, right word to describe what is going on in the church. Brick by brick, wire by wire, two by four by two by four, one after another being put together, which has its foundation, Jesus Christ. And the work does not stop. On this side of heaven, the work continues. Why? Because your knowledge of Jesus and the depths of your faith is deeper and wider than an ocean. In verse 15 and 16, Paul reverts back to the human body as an analogy of the church. We've bumped into this several times in the book of Ephesians. But here, Paul fills out the metaphor. With Jesus as the head of the body, each member is held together by every joint, verse 16. When the body is assembled correctly and working with all the other members of the body, the body grows. The individual parts of the body grow. And what in particular helps the body to grow? Look at verse 16. Your capacity to love one another. To love one another. That's how you grow. But here's where Paul's analogy actually breaks down. Unlike our human bodies, it takes work for the church body to grow, to love. I never thought about my body growing when I was younger. It just kind of happened. You know, it's not like I was 10 years old and be like, what's going on right now? No, it just, it just happened. All of a sudden I was six foot. However, for you to grow in your faith requires an active faith. We read that it requires love, love for one another. So if you desire to grow in your faith, we pursue unity through love. Love the person next to you and love the person who might not be your first, first choice to go get coffee with. There are no caveats for who you are called to love in the body of Christ, which is remarkable. You are called to love all parts of the body of Christ. 
Listen, far too often we create caveats in our mind of who we should or should not love, who can love a little bit and who we want to love a lot. We do that all the time because we're sinners. But there are no caveats in who we're called to love. God calls us to love all of the body of Christ equally. If you ever had that kind of thought where you want to create that caveat in your mind, you need to know it's just unbiblical. The love of Christ has no boundaries, and we are called to love like Christ. Let's stay on the topic of love for a second. In verse 15, it says, We are to speak the truth in love. It seems the, the phrase, speak the truth in love, is often repeated in the church. And sometimes it is taken out of its like literary context. It's like, speak the truth in love. And it's like, but why and to who and how? We just kind of pull it out and you know, frame it up and put it on our bathroom wall or whatever. It seems the phrase, speak the truth in love, is often repeated in the church. But I think there's more going on. It's, it's been used to cudgel some Christians to defend the truth of the gospel at all costs. Now, I'm all about defending the gospel. Paul is warning the Ephesian church of false teachers and passages. And in a few moments, I'm going to get all fired up when we get to those particular verses of our passage. But notice that speaking the truth and love to one another in the church is a part of growing in your spiritual maturity. Two immediate thoughts come to mind on this point. First, we can say truth is expressed through the scriptures, no doubt. I can make that point and defend it. But truth in Ephesians 4.15 is connected directly to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the truth we need to be speaking to one another in love. You are to remind one another that Jesus is the Son of God, verse 13. We are to grow into the fullness of Christ, verse 13. And we are to tell one another that Christ is the head of the body, the church, verse 15. If we are going to speak the truth in love, we need to know the truth. And here's the deal. We need to remind each other of the truth because if you're anything like me, you're prone to forget. You're just prone to forget. And so I need you. you be like, Sean, here's the truth of the matter. We need each other. Second point on this idea of truth and love is speaking the truth in love. Don't bother speaking the truth if you can't do it in love, <laughs> right? Don't bother. Evidence of not growing in your faith could be speaking the truth not in love. Social media has certainly exposed the hearts of many Christians. And by no means am I trying to be mean or hostile. I'm just trying to point out some observations where I think there needs to be some corrections. With one statement, a person will be unjustly destroyed, say, on Twitter or wherever. And then the next statement might be something like, but Jesus loves you. Right? Happens all the time. It's hard for a person to receive the truth of Christ if you're being a jerk, right? So growing in maturity means having a heart full of love that manifests itself in your attitude and with your words. A heart full of love manifests itself in how you treat other people, and specifically as it pertains to the book of Ephesians, how we treat and care for one another. 
is another avenue of growing in maturity from our text. The third way to grow in your faith is by doing ministry. This point may sound strange to some of you, and I do think this point is often overlooked by Christians. Ministry is often relegated to pastors or like someone who's on staff in the church, right? It's like, uh, who does the ministry in your church? Oh, the pastor over there. That guy over there. He's got the microphone. He does the ministry. Um, Newsflash, that's not biblical at all. God calls all followers of Jesus Christ into ministry. Yes, there is a place for people to be called into formal ministry, like being a pastor, but formal ministry categories do not exclude, say, like just informal categories. I mean, look at verses 11 and 12. In our passage, these particular verses probably receive the most attention. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and shepherds and teachers to what? Equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So we have some formal categories that some people operate out of. We've got apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher, right? We've got those, those five formal offices. But the weight of these verses is not on the formal offices. It's on the saints. It's on all of us. I mean, I do need to point out that far too often the conversation about these verses is on the formal offices. And to be sure, there are questions about whether apostles and prophets are still formal offices in the church. I have opinions on that. You surely may know those already. But the aim or the goal is to equip you for the ministry. That's the emphasis in this particular passage. I think it's instructive to notice that in verse 12, the Greek word for ministry is connected to you. Why is your participation in ministry important? It's important because it's a way you build up one another into maturity. That's what's going on here. You do the work of the ministry so that you can encourage and help others grow into maturity. If you want to grow in your faith, you need to be proactive in serving one another, specifically in the church. One of my jobs as your pastor is to equip you for that ministry. That's part of my calling, to equip you to that end. One of my jobs is to teach you the truth so that you can raise kids in the Lord to share the gospel and share the gospel with your neighbor. I'm here to do everything in my power to see you serve one another in the church and then to put you, push you outside of the walls of this church and serve your community. A healthy local church is full of Christians maturing in the faith because they're doing the ministry of the Lord. So what ministry is God calling you to join in? I mean, if the answer is not much right now, and, and indeed it has been a unique season in the life of this church, and I grant that, COVID was crazy, meeting in seven locations, eight locations in one year, that's been nuts. But a lot of that's going to change, Lord willing, in the next couple weeks. And I promise you, there are going to be opportunities for you to serve, ministry opportunities for you to build up one another in the body of Christ and for you to mature in your faith. Those opportunities are coming. So those are the ways for you to grow into maturity. Number one, once again, you uh, strive to stay united. Number two, speak the truth in love. And three, you are active in in participating in the ministry. Okay, in the pursuit of growing in your faith, there is always another side to the coin, right? You all know this. You got heads and there's always the tails. While there are opportunities to grow, there's also opportunities to progress or even become apathetic in your faith. 
So I want to share with you the other side of the coin by explaining what it means to be children in verse 14, and then to show you two things. How bad doctrine and believing in the schemes of the world keep you from becoming mature. Ephesians 4.14 is a very important text. Ephesians 4.14 implies that there are spiritual children in danger of succumbing to several pitfalls. Now, before I get to the pitfalls, I need to explain the two different manners in which God's people are called children in the New Testament, because that could get a little confusing, because it's used one way over here and another way right here. In the New Testament, in particular, the Apostle John often used the word child to describe a person's trust in God. That was a good thing. Uh, we want to have like childlike faith. For example, parents want their kids to what? Trust them. God calls all parents to provide, protect, and spiritually raise their kids in the Lord. In particular, fathers take the lead in these responsibilities. Children then have an innate ability to trust the ones who are caring after their needs. That's a good kind of trust. Christians are called to trust God for provision and care. However, verse 14, when children is used, it is not a sign of endearment at all. When it comes to your Christian maturity, you do not want to be like a child, as it's explained in verse 14. Another passage makes the point. It's like the author of Hebrews and the Apostle Paul were comparing notes at the most recent denominational meeting. I've already read the text, but here it is again. In Hebrews, Jesus is being compared to the great high priest Melchizedek. This is Hebrews 5. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become so dull of hearing for, for though by this time you ought to become teachers. The author of Hebrews is like, it's been so long. It's what have you been doing, guys? You should be teachers by now. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. This is not an endearing statement here. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives by milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish, and this is really important for how I'm going to segue into these pitfalls, to distinguish good from evil. These many words from Hebrews 5 help us to grasp the few words from Ephesians 4, 14. The children are drinking milk instead of solid food and children are unable to discern good from evil. So, you want to mature in your faith so that you can discern from false teaching. You all know this. Our world is connected now more than ever. And with social media, YouTube, and other platforms readily available, the exchange of ideas is constantly going on. Ideas are, are more accessible now than they have ever been. There are some advantages to the way we are connected and the way information is shared, right? There's some advantages there for sure. However, there's some disadvantages. False teaching is constantly in front of our eyes or in our ears. Like I said earlier, you can pursue whatever idea you want. It's there. You can find it. I was thinking the other day about how the prosperity gospel in particular, just to use a couple examples, it seems to come in waves within Christianity. It's like you're like standing in the ocean and the waves just keep coming in and coming in and coming in. Prosperity gospel is kind of like that. The prosperity gospel is taught in America. 
then that garbage is exported to countries in Africa, South America, and Asia. Our brother Joshua from Uganda certainly knows this. We've had many conversations about how the prosperity gospel, a false gospel, runs rabid in places like Uganda, not leading people to God, leading people away from God and usually just to themselves. False promises being given. Prosperity gospel exploits those who are living in poverty with lies. And I want you to be able to discern when prosperity doctrine is being preached so that you can care for your soul, care for your children, if you have children, care for others in the church. And the way you ensure you know what is false from what is true is what? You eat solid food. You eat solid food. Solid food is found where? Right in God's Word. This is how we're able to discern. By opening up this book and discerning what are lies and what is true. Now, the prosperity gospel is not the only theological system or philosophical system spouting out lies. You don't even need to know all the nuts and bolts of the prosperity gospel to dispute the teaching. Why? Because when you're reading God's word, you will, like I already said, be able to discern truth from lies, regardless of, of where, where the information is coming from. As a matter of fact, you can test my, my fallible words. As I speak right now, you can test my fallible words with what? The infallible word of God. And you know what? I'm going to say this. I want you to. Now, I want you to trust me as your pastor, but more than that, I want you to trust God's word. Now, let's look at another warning that we see in our text. I'm going to make a direct application to 21st century America. Verse 14 also says we need to be aware of human cunning, craftiness, and deceitful schemes. We got the false teaching, but now we got this other idea of human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Two Greek words are used here, cunning and craftiness, and they're basically implying the same idea. So Paul is basically reinforcing this is what you need to watch out for. Here is the devil's lie. The devil wants to walk you away from the truth of the gospel. He lies all the time trying to walk you away from the truth of the gospel. And the devil uses other people to accomplish his purpose. If a person is tricky or crafty, the lies tend to be very subtle, very subtle. Like we can sometimes detect false teaching and it's overt and it's obvious. You can be like, yeah, that doesn't square with scripture. But there's other ways in which the devil wants to lead you away to keep you from growing. And it's very subtle and overt. Subtle lies can be hard to detect for the immature. That's what we read. But mature Christians can discern the lies. Here, here are two subtle lies that I think have made its way into God's church. Number one, if you've ever read, um, if you've never read the screw tape letters, I would encourage you to do so by C.S. Lewis. I encourage you to do so, or even listen to the audiobook. Equally good. Focus on the Family does one. It's like a radio theater. Excellent. It's about the devil, his name is Screwtape, who teaches his nephew, Wormwood, about how to test and tempt a man they call the patient. The patient. Like you're a patient at a hospital. They want patient to sin. The end goal is to get patient into hell. So different tactics are used. But well, well, at one point, Screwtape gives Wormwood, the following advice, I put it on the screen for you. He says this, 
if you can once get him to the point of thinking that, quote, religion is all very well up to a point, you can feel quite happy about his soul. Look at this line. A moderated religion, you can say a moderated faith, is as good for us as no religion at all, and all more amusing. The devil has you right where he wants you if he and his minions can make you complacent in your faith. What kind of threat are you to the devil if you have no care for the kingdom of God? Honestly, what kind of threat are you if you have no care for the kingdom of God? The devil has subtle and covert ways to keep you as a child. So that's one lie that I thought of when I thought about this particular text. This deceitful schemes, being cunning. I got another one. And this one is controversial. This is leading people away from the truth of the gospel, or at the very least, is keeping children as children. These are controversial statements, but I don't think they should be controversial at all. When you go to your favorite news outlet, you're beginning to see stories about critical race theory and intersectionality. You may have seen it as CRT-I. Up to this point, I've said nothing from the pulpit about critical race theory and intersectionality because the conversation has been taking place within academic elites, uh, cultural thinkers, and politicians, right? But it's now become mainstream. Like, it seems like every day I'll pull up the news. It could be MSNBC, it could be CNN, it could be Fox News. Pick, your, pick wherever you want in the spectrum, and we have something that says critical race theory. It's there. I've been thinking about this system of thought since the summer of 2018. Some circumstances took place that came on my radar. So before many of you were hearing about CRTI, critical race theory, intersectionality in the news, I've been reading books on the topic, reading articles on the topic, having discussions with people, even people who very passionately disagree with me, trying to understand. If you want more of the backstory, um, did several podcasts on this in the middle of 2020 at cornfieldtheology.com explaining some of the origin and the details of critical race theory. Here's the point I want to say very clearly. The doctrines of critical race theory and intersectionality are not congruent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm going to say it again. The doctrines of critical race theory and intersectionality are not, are not, are not congruent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about the political aspects of critical theory, which is the foundation of critical race theory. I do have opinions on the politics of critical theory, but at the present, I am more concerned with what has been manifested from those pushing critical race theory. Here's what you really need to know, because I'm sure some of you are like, what are you talking about? Or, I can't believe you're even going there. <laughs> the value system, morality, and ethics of critical race theory are what I take issue with. The morality, the ethics, the value system. The doctrines of critical race theory and intersectionality are cunning and deceitful. Again, I've held my tongue on this for so long, but it's in the news. You're seeing it. You're reading it. And as your pastor, when I look at this particular text, I have no choice but to go there to help you think about the issue. 
I'm compelled, frankly. Here's author Scott David Allen explaining a difference between the value system of the Bible and CRT. Talking about critical race theory, what does this morality look like? It certainly doesn't involve what historically were considered virtues, things like honesty, kindness, chastity, patience, forgiveness, marital fidelity, modesty, and civility. No, it means one thing, overturning oppressive systems and liberating marginalized groups. I don't have time to delve into the politics of that last sentence, but I have noticed how many Christians are sympathetic with critical race theory because they're being told critical race theory solves the sin of what? Racism, right? That's a lie. That is a lie. You cannot solve racism with a system that is inherently racist. And by the way, I uphold the classic definition of racism. I believe Martin Luther King Jr. was right when he said, you judge a person by the content of their character, not on the color of their skin. By the standards of critical race theory, Martin Luther King Jr. would be canceled. So here's the deal. We are being told that if you don't uphold CRT, you are a racist. Well, I disagree. Two things can be true at the same time. Our society and our culture seem to be incapable of holding up two truths at the same time. Here are the truths. Critical race theory is a garbage can lit on fire, and racism is evil and comes from the pit of hell. Both are true. One's a dumpster fire, and the other one comes from the pit of hell. Some Christians subtly believe the lies put forth by proponents of critical race theory. CRT is leading Christians away from what? From gospel solutions that can solve serious problems that are rooted in sin. Consider my point from another perspective. When it comes to solving various problems of the human heart, sin, what will endure as an answer to problems created by sin? What will endure? What has endured for years and decades? 100 years from now, if Jesus does not return, the gospel will endure. And critical race theory will be a footnote in the history books. The gospel will endure. But today, critical race theory, whether a person understands the nuances and the details or does not, is leading people away from the gospel and from gospel solutions. Christians are being fooled by a false gospel. Now, I know I've made some sweeping statements. I get that. I get that. And I can't suffer the death of a thousand qualifications in one sermon, which as you know, I've podcasted on this, I've written a little bit on this, I'm doing more podcasts on this to help inform you how I understand these cultural issues and how I do, and the reasons why I do think they are cunning and deceitful schemes. But I want you to believe what is biblical and discern what is false. I'm bringing it to your attention so when you read the news or you talk about it with your friend, your biblical worldview is informing how you understand the issue. 
do not believe in the cunning and craftiness of critical race theory and intersectionality. No longer be a child, as our text says. Do not be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, verse 14. Because guess what? Critical race theory will be here today, but another lie will come tomorrow. Instead, eat the solid food of God's word so that when you look up from God's word, you can discern the root and the solution to severe problems in our country, in our communities, in our families, and in the church. The gospel of Jesus Christ is bigger and more powerful than any theory from the halls of the academy or what you see in the news. Certainly we can believe that, right? The gospel is bigger and more powerful, and it's the gospel that helps us to solve very important issues such as racism. So, what is now the end game of growing in maturity? Well, the answer from this passage, I admit, is a bit tricky. Once again, Paul, as his custom, writes this long run-on sentence. Every time Paul writes a long run-on sentence in the Greek, it gets difficult to translate in the English. He uses words unique in this passage, unique to this passage. But I think I can safely say that the goal is for you to become more like Jesus. Take a look at verse 13. It's just not like a tag-on statement that I'm just slapping on. You should grow to mature manhood. Someone would be like, well, why not womanhood? Well, manhood, because it's connected there to Christ. You should grow to mature manhood, and we can certainly contextualize and say womanhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. When you pursue unity, love, and do the work of the ministry in the local church, you become more like Christ. I think these are simple solutions if you find yourself at the present just like drinking milk, and you're like, I want, I want solid food. We have some answers here. Ephesians 4 has some answers for you. And the warning from our passage is this. Your Christ-likeness diminishes when you become complacent or when you allow your tickling ears, little whispers in ears, and you allow your ears to believe lies, whether it's false doctrine from false teachers or sharing that meme or social media post that is contrary to the gospel or believing the empty philosophies of the world, Colossians 2.8. Our pursuit of spiritual maturity rests in the message of Christ made clear in his word. It is the message about a crucified Savior who atones for sins. It's about our Savior who rose from the dead. It's the power of this message that offers forgiveness. It offers hope. It offers reconciliation. So let's not be fooled by unsound teaching, but let's rejoice in the good work God is doing to mature the saints of Redemption Hill Church. Make sure you continue to grow, to pursue unity. Make sure you speak the truth in love. Let's all do the work of the ministry. With all that, we will mature. You will mature. Let's pray.